podcast and your place for respectful yet provocative discussion of law, politics, and culture in Canada and beyond. My name is Joanna Barron. Today's episode features a discussion with Daniel Goldwater. He is a lawyer at Goldwater Dubay in Montreal, one of Quebec's most prominent firms in family and constitutional law. Daniel is also a writer and has his own podcast, the Goldwater Family Podcast, uh, which is replete with insight and wit, and I recommend it to you highly. This conversation was recorded following the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada's 2017 conference, which focused on multiculturalism, immigration, and integration to Canada. We discussed some key takeaways about so-called Canadian exceptionalism, and then we turn to Quebec exceptionalism. We talk about this year's tragic shooting at a mosque in Quebec City and why the shooter Alexandre Bissonnette was charged with first-degree murder rather than terrorism. We also talk about Charles Taylor and his recent renunciation of some of the recommendations of the Bouchard-Taylor Commission report. Finally, just as this episode was about to go up, a scandal surrounding the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada's director, Andrew Potter, erupted. Potter had written an inflammatory Maclean's op-ed, which was deeply critical of Quebec and its social fabric. Amidst allegations that the piece was anecdotal, sloppy, and poorly thought out, McGill swiftly accepted Potter's resignation. A debate on the aggravated response and possible threat to academic freedom ensued. So please do listen through to the end for a short discussion of the so-called Potter Affair. And with that, I bring you Daniel Goldwater. Enjoy. Okay, so I'm here with Maître Daniel Goldwater. We're here in Montreal on an unseasonably sunny and warm Saturday afternoon. Um, and just over a week ago, we were um, at the McGill Institute for Canadian Studies conference called Canadian Exceptionalism, Are We Good or Are We Lucky? And broadly speaking, this touched on um, the, you know, the real sort of background question was, could Trumpism, a populist revolution, nativism happen in Canada? How are we doing with integrating um, immigrants? How is Canadian multiculturalism working? And, and what were your takeaways? What were my takeaways? Um, I had many. They're a little jumbled. I'll do my best to consolidate and organize my takeaways. Well, I mean, as to the narrow question, can Trumpism happen here? I think the, the question, the answer is obvious. I mean, yes, of course it could. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, I didn't think it could happen in the U.S. I think most people uh, thought it couldn't happen, and it did. So um, that's the narrow question. Now, are we more immune to it, I think, is it maybe the bigger question? Like, do we have better, or do we have safeguards in place? Uh, yeah, I had a lot to chew on from what they had said. Is it that we have safeguards in place, or is it that we're starting out from a better position than Americans are, i.e. we don't have the same horrific legacy of slavery? Although, as one speaker brought up, we do have a legacy of slavery, but uh, more discreet, I would say. Um, and we don't have a border with Mexico. The border with Mexico is no doubt a distinguishing factor that's relevant here. I don't know to what extent a legacy of slavery is really that causal in what happened in America, the, the Trumpocalypse, like I, I like to say. Well, I guess I, people would say there's like white supremacists in substantial number, and many of them were Trumpers. 
You know, I don't like, it's funny, with, with the whole Trump election, you know, everyone I meet, everything I read has their, their argument. And my view is that it's, it's far more ambiguous and dispersed than people like to give it credit for. I mean, I think that really the, the major backdrops to me are the 2009 recession. I mean, to me, I think that's, a, that that's an essential component as to what begat this rise in populism. I think that Trump was on the right side of the populism. Bernie was on the left side of it. I think that there was an appetite for disruption in the air. Um, so I see it more as a zeitgeist thing. Uh, and as to uh, you know, slavery and white supremacy, I think it's also Hillary herself was a very weak candidate. And I don't think, I think that that is also an essential component. I think she was very uninspiring, had way too much baggage, and was a poor campaigner. And so, you know, you talk about the legacy of white supremacy in America, I mean, you know, that, that's a cause in anything, I suppose. Uh, I don't know how proximate it is in, in the Trump uh, example. Okay, so let's pivot back to Canada and the McGill Conference. Um, so one thing that we spoke about was during the conference was that it was rather predictably a bit of an echo chamber and there was not one immigration restrictionist present to, to give a sort of you know, provocative or countervailing view. Um, the assumption was open borders, the assumption was pro-refugee, pro-migration, um, and is that a problem? Well, I, I also... Are, are there smart restrictionists and what would they say? Uh, I believe there are, uh, but to go back a little bit, I, I know not to um, reformulate your question for you. I just want to take issue with fully, you know, double downing on the the echo chamber thing. Uh, I mean, yes, I do think that there was an element of, I don't know, smugness, maybe. I don't want to overstate it. They were real academics with very serious facts. Uh, but And many charts. <laughs> yeah, many charts. <laughs> and we were awash in empiricism. It was sticking to me after. It was very sticky. Um, but uh, no, I think in fact Doug Saunders, um, his speech, uh, his his talk. Who's a Globe and Mail reporter, by the way? Right, it should be said. Uh, I thought he had some compelling warnings. He spoke about uh, Rob Ford, who is I think no friend to the academic left, and uh, and his support, uh, his base were among the many immigrant populations in the suburbs of Toronto. He also spoke of the Harper Conservative government and how they had made a lot of inroads in the uh, immigrant visible minority population in America, I mean, sorry, in Canada, and that that is not a good thing, I suppose, in his view. Um, and so, he, you're right, he did not, no one really espoused an, an immigration restrictionist policy, but I don't know exactly what his observations portend. I mean, he didn't go into prescriptive uh, elements. But no, I, however, I don't remember which speaker this was. I could go back and check, but you recall there was another speaker who said Stephen Harper was the savior of multiculturalism in Canada, actually, because he's the one that brought Preston Manning's Reform Party into the fold and convinced them that they needed to be moderate on the question of immigration. Um, so, in fact, if you want to look at the people who really turned, turned the ship around in Canada, don't look at the Liberals or the NDP. Look at Stephen Harper who brought away the sort of populist, nativist type elements and by just persuading them of their own electoral advantage. Yeah, I took note of that point. I, I, I liked it because I do consider myself in some ways, not to box myself in, but something of a Harper conservative. 
and um, and I do find that the Canadian the Canadian Alliance and that he kind of tamed, I guess, in my view, from their so social conservatism uh, was something that I applaud uh, or applauded. But anyways, back to your, your your question more directly: Are there smart restriction uh, immigration restrictionists out there? I think you you know David Frum is what I think you mentioned and who comes to mind. And no doubt he's a smart he is a smart uh, immigration restrictionist. I've read his paper his articles closely during the American election, and yeah, he's definitely smart, and he definitely articulates the argument uh, very well. I'm still not, I still have reservations. I have to say, I wish I could come in here with some sort of, I don't know, a polemic or something exciting in terms of like a real decision on it, but I'm, I'm closer to the fence. <laughs> fence being a little funny in this discussion, we're talking about immigrants, but what issue do I take? If I, if I had to kind of summarize, I guess, for the listener or for, for myself, what I take from Spiel to be on this is that there's a integration problem that goes down the line uh, in terms of immigrations that come here. Really, the, the way that we, he, he, spout, he says that we should be looking at it are those with the education and the skill set to thrive in America or whatever Western democracy these uh, refugee claimants or, or migrants are coming from or to. Um, and that he gives the example of Mexican immigrants uh, to America who in second and even third generation sometimes even go down the socioeconomic ladder. Um, he doesn't go so far as, he rarely goes into sort of cultural issues. He just says it is what it is. They don't necessarily come um, with just the right education, or maybe there's a cultural component. They don't move up the educational ladder because they're not being pushed to. And he talks about Syrians and uh, Somalians who, again, maybe come from more, say, pre-industrial, say, societies than a post-industrial urban society and they don't integrate well. These are all very compelling arguments, it's all very fact-y. Um, but he often, in his pieces, he's a, he, he, and I don't want to get ad hominem, because I respect and admire David Frum, uh, but he, he's, he's a Jewish intellectual, and, and I am as well, maybe not an intellectual, but I am, I am Jewish in my ethnicity. And he often talks about, as maybe a straw man, I'm not sure, but he uses it in his his article is about, this is not about turning away the Jews, um, refugee claimants back in World War II. That, that often shuts down the debate that when it comes to refugee and asylum, asylum seekers. Um, and he says that that's not fair because essentially he's suggesting that the, the Jews who came to America or the West were Einsteins and Billy Wilders or uh, you know, the good Jews who integrated and were intelligent and thrived. But I take issue with that. But because not all of them clearly were Einstein or Billy Wilder? Or, or because you think it's just chauvinistic in thrust? <laughs> well, you said it. I mean, no, I don't know. No, I don't think it's chauvinistic. I think, well, look, I think it's, I, I like people who speak from their own, uh, who acknowledge their own cultural uh, positioning. Or, and he doesn't really make it explicit that he has a dog in that fight. He just talks about it. So it is something that comes up in argument. You know, the issue I take is more that, um, I, think he, look, I think he's right. If you're talking about, like, say, German Jew refugees or the ones that made it to America or elsewhere happen to be, yes, more educated, better connected. There's a reason they fled. There's a reason they got away before being gassed and murdered. Uh, the ones that were not so lucky, and I don't want to 
you know, typecast, these are some large numbers, it seems to me evident, were ones that did not have access to these things. What are you going to say to the, to the shtetls that were in Poland, ultra-Orthodox, quote-unquote, backwards, pre-industrial, maybe, types of Jewish communities that were slaughtered? Um, what does he have to say about that? I mean, you could talk it in a very business-like fashion. We're talking about policy, and I do tend towards the business-like when we talk about government policy. But I don't think he ever really faces that moral conundrum. And anyways, I don't know how importable this is really to the Syrian uh, situation or, the, or so, the Somalian refugees in Canada and elsewhere, but it's something that I often remark upon. So also at the conference, there was a sort of exceptionalism within an exceptionalism. There was a question of not just Canadian exceptionalism, but Quebec exceptionalism. Um, and the most uh, sort of shocking chart of the many charts that we saw um, was one which outlined the attitudes of vis-a-vis um, -vis privacy and surveillance in Quebec versus ROC, the rest of Canada. Um, and it was dramatic. Uh, 68% of Quebecers versus 38% of Canadians and the rest of Canada outside of Quebec support banning the Islamic headscarf. 67% versus 44% of the rest of Canada monitoring mosques. 35% versus 31% targeting nonviolent protesters. 45% Quebec versus 32% rest of Canada stop and frisk based on race. So that brings up the other, um, the other ghost hanging with its specter over the conference. Th just three weeks ago, this Sunday evening, of course, um, was the Quebec mosque shooting in which a 27-year-old young man, um, Alex Bissonnette, shot six, uh, six devotees at a, at, a, at a mosque in Quebec City. Um, so I guess I, my implication by transposing the numbers that I just read and then bringing up the question of the mosque shooting is, should we be surprised that if something this atrocious were to happen in Canada, it happened in Quebec? Oof. <laughs> Oof. Ben Lola. Okay, you're... Okay, let me, let me mention something. I, um, I'm a Quebecer, okay? I'm English speaking. Well, you're, you're rather more Montrealer. Let's, let's, be, let's be frank. Uh, sure, I, I, I contain multitudes. I have, I have many tribal allegiances. You can call me a citizen of the earth if you wish. Uh, but I'm also a Quebecer. And uh, maybe it's my, my nativism is showing. Uh, but I, and, it's, and don't get me wrong, I have my cultural traumas being an Anglophone Jew in Montreal and Quebec and all that background and baggage. I'll call it out if people want to talk about it. But at the same time, uh, I'm a Quebecer. And they are my people, and I, I am also theirs. And um, so I do get a little defensive when I'm at these conferences uh, or any, in any kind of context where, you know, the ROC, rest of Canada, as we say. And by the way, my starting question, are we surprised this happened in Quebec, was intended to be provocative. Oh, no, I, I, I took that. Uh, I like your intention. Don't get me wrong. I, I also like to be provoked. I'm just also responding to the provocation. And so just, just to mention, the, you know, the way you alluded to it was very poetic, you know, the specter, the ghost, the haunting of it all that was over this conference whenever Quebec came up. We're talking about um, populism and uh, assimilation of immigrants and potential radical violence that we saw in Quebec City. So anyways, my, my point is when those things came up, I just had to admit that I had a, um, 
I didn't like the chill and I didn't like the suggestion. I always feel that way whenever I speak to ROC intellectuals. Anyways, I don't want to be, this is not a grievance moment. It's just I'm putting it out there. So take what you may from the things that follow from what I say. Um, but look, I do think that Quebec, of course, is particular. I think that the stats that you uh, shared that I saw uh, on display and the PowerPoint at the conference didn't really surprise me. Um, and how to explain it? Are we, are we surprised? I want to, you know, I want to respect your question. No, I'm not surprised. Uh, do I think that, I guess it's the implication of Quebec being particularly maybe sick in Confederation. There's something about the Quebec character that is chauvinistic, that is ethnocentric, that is, uh, uh, places too much faith in government, perhaps, uh, l'état providentiel. As we say here, we have more of a welfare state here. There's a, a very a spooky legacy of the Duplessis government and the Quiet Revolution. I don't want to give a history lesson to people. Um, so, I don't know, that's my automatic sort of re reaction to your provocation. Um, so I'm waiting for another question to, to, to kind of make it more specific. Well, so let, let's talk about the Bissonnette incident, which is before the courts, his next appearance, he's in remand custody. I don't believe he's entered a guilty plea. Uh, he's next up in court on February 21st. Um, and one of the sort of legal questions is, you know, let's talk about some law, we're both lawyers, is why was this guy charged with first degree murder, six counts of first degree murder, and not terrorism? Um, and ought to he have been charged with terrorism? And to sort of add another provocation to the mix, um, if a radical Islamist entered a synagogue and shot up six people, would there be, um, would there be this equivocation? Would we even be having this discussion? Wouldn't it be obvious on its face that it was an act of terrorism? Well... So should we... Let, let's refer to the statute for a moment. <clears throat> so terrorism, this is in the Criminal Code of Canada, is an act of, or a mission that is committed in whole or in part for a political, religious, or ideological purpose, objective, or cause, and in whole or in part with the intention of intimidating the public or a segment of the, of the public. Yeah, no, I, I'm familiar with the, um, with, the, uh, with the article, the section of the criminal code that you just read, I mean, at least in, in reading about, what, uh, about the tragedy and this, and this controversy. Again, uh, maybe I'm thinking like an attorney, but disclaimer, criminal law is not my, my field of expertise. I, I do, um, well, I've done family law and constitutional uh, as it relates to family law, a bit of administrative law. Anyways, that well, said... We're, we're both commenting as, uh, you know, well-informed observers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're so well-informed. Gosh, so good to be uh, informed and intelligent and uh, erudite. Um, I, I think that, uh, I don't think he should be charged with terrorism, this, this sad fellow. I think that it adds something to the evil that he committed that is unnecessary. Uh, I'm generally suspicious. To me, when you're speaking of acts of terrorism, the essence is sort of uh, paramilitary groups and networks. And sort of like in San Bernardino or in this whole lone wolf gunman uh, thing that we're seeing right now along uh, in the West. And the connections that some of these, these again, very lost, angry souls 
have to these paramilitary networks is, is dubious. And you know, I, I find it very hard to, uh, to dust off this, this section of the code and apply it to people who are reading uh, some, some hate speech that was put out by ISIS and then they go out and they, they commit some evil. I think that that's not really the intention of that section. I really do think, and you know, correct me, push back on this if you want to, uh, I just think that you know, plain old murder <laughs> is good enough. The poor fellow is going to be in jail pro probably for the rest of his life. Okay, and that's what the law should concern itself with, is deterrence and a bit of, a bit of punishment. And I think that's being satisfied here. And I don't see the need to politicize what happened or to, uh, unless again, there's really a proximity to uh, real terrorist networks. Okay, so to push back, three, three comments. First of all, I think much of the confusion and controversy around this surrounds the ambiguity of how we define terrorism itself. And my contention, I will say, um, as somebody who's read about this and studied about this for a while, I, I think the notion of paramilitary groups and organized cells um, is uh, a bit outdated at this point. Um, ISIS recruits uh, followers in its magazine called Dabiq, which I can't officially recommend that you look up because it could be um, construed as promoting terrorist publications. <laughs> um, actually, it's actually a crime to possess the PDFs of this. There is a research exception, um, but let's be honest, the cops aren't looking at me for these things. Um, but it directly says, it's the magazine Dabiq is, is directed at English-speaking Westerners, and it directly says, if you want to fight jihad, don't come to Syria, don't come to Iraq, the, here are the bomb recipes, here's what you do, fight jihad in the West. That, that's how we need you. Um, so it is, there is a direct incitement to commit an act. So that's, that's my first comment, that terrorism has become uh, much more dispersed, much more virtual, um, and this old, you know, old school idea of like a cave, a cell of terrorists um, is not really relevant. My second comment, of course, I was talking about Islamic terror, um, a um, My second comment is that Bissonnette's act, um, and from what we know so far from the sort of evidence that we're aware of, the non-informal evidence, um, he had ties to these radical alt-right groups, was, sympath was sympathetic to people like Marine Le Pen um, and Trump, um, and was involved with these fringe alt-right elements. But his act and acts of radical Islamic terror are analogous in this important sense to me, that they represent acts of an individual who has decreed that conversation and rational conversation is not sufficient and and their aims can only be can only be uh, advanced by showing up somewhere with guns and killing people that's that's the similarity between extreme islamism and the extreme alt-right is that they're sort of immune to facts and rational conversation and resort to violence or at least in this instance Bissonnette did Okay, look, Joanna, if you're angling towards the similarity between uh, extreme right-wing uh, sort of, I don't know, white supremacist acts of violence and terrorism and it, it, its parallel nature with other extreme right-wing radical Islamic terror, sure, fine, I'll agree with that. Next issue. But we're talking about criminal, we're talking about a, a section of the criminal code and it's just a different sort of forum. And so I ask myself, like, what is this adding to the mix Besides, I mean, and there's symbolic power. Well, yeah, so I was going to say, there's clearly symbolic power in labeling a crime 
the crime that it is and ensuring that the elements of the offense can correspond to the law in the books. Yeah, but I, I, I agree with you, but this it also leads to, there's a risk in all that of sort of politicization and incoherence, right? I mean, this is the, the challenge that we're having right now. It's like, to what extent, along the, that continuum of inspiration from uh, nasty ideas out there in the world to, I am running, I am Osama bin Laden, I mean, there's a continuum, right? And I just find it's a very, it's a tricky continuum that I don't think criminal law should even be jumping upon. I, I'm, I'm suspicious of them jumping upon it. I find... Well, we do have a, a, you know, an, an offense of terrorism in criminal law, so we are, we are jumping in. We and are this in offense, the right yeah, well, my understanding of this offense, uh, in particular the one that uh, this Bissonnette fellow is being uh, charged with, uh, was a reaction to 9-11. And uh, so it's not exactly it's that there's a great sort of, I don't know, historical momentum behind this section. I see it as something a bit reactionary to the trauma of 9-11, not to say it's unjustified, I'm just pointing this out in terms of putting it in its context. One thing that often disturbs me about criminal law are a lot of the sections that I see there tend to be kind of reactionary. There's something very uh, sad and devastating that happens. People get up in arms and politicians pass these things to to calm the public and then later on the courts kind of sort out and scratch their heads and they're like okay let's clean this one up did it really add something and well look it, it's not perfect it's messy however the alternative to the community defining what constitutes offenses against her majesty the queen um, is anarchy and um and sort of guerrilla justice so i prefer it oh well that's a false dichotomy <laughs> uh joanna i'm not here to say uh you know throw out the criminal code and let people sort it out i'm just saying that there are crimes that are in that uh in that in that noble book or um uh, that that are plain and, and timeless and you know i think um and I just wonder about like murder. Yeah. Well, well, like yeah, like murder. And I, you know, it's the same reason I'm very suspicious of hate crime legislation. I've often had a real concern with that as a libertarian. Uh, that it seems kind of a little incoherent to me and open. And this is where other conservatives I don't necessarily align myself with, but Mark Stein or Ezra Levant, who kind of made a career uh, from being accused of hate crime legislation or, or committing hate crimes against the, was it the Canadian Islamic Congress, this is going back now uh, maybe whatever, 15 some odd years, and they published uh, articles about their experiences before the Human Rights Commission in Canada uh, with some charges that, that, that they received that were a little silly. It's, it's, it's thought crime. It's thought crime. I'm very suspicious of thought crime. And I, and I worry that sometimes... Okay, well here there's six dead bodies, so this is not thought crime. But the, 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 and that's enough. That's severe and horrendous and profound enough. Like what need, like, and I understand intention matters in criminal law. I get that. Intention to murder is, is enough. <laughs> okay, so let, let's turn to the other interesting political controversy that has been a fallout of this tragedy in Quebec City, um, which is a great flop between two of Quebec's great intellectuals, um, Bouchard and Taylor, who, so a little bit of background on Bouchard and Taylor, they were commissioned by Jean Charest, who was then the Premier of Quebec, in 2001 to uh, consult with communities across Quebec and write a report on reasonable accommodation. And this triggering event was a controversy surrounding a young boy 
in a school who was wearing a kirpan, which is a Sikh uh, sort of religious object that looks like a dagger. Um, and there was a controversy over whether he ought to be permitted uh, to wear it to school. Um, and at first there was a proposal that he could wear it inside his clothes, but then the governing school board of association rejected that. It went all, all the way to the Supreme Court and uh, the Supreme Court ended up saying he did have the right to wear his kirpan. Um, but uh, aside from that, these two Quebec intellectuals, Charles Taylor, um, who wrote the um, classic essay, Multiculturalism and the Politics of Recognition, um, and Bouchal, who's a sociologist, spent many years writing um, a report about how to reconcile claims of, of minorities, religious minorities, within a majoritarian culture, um, Quebecois culture, which perceived itself as a minority vis-a-vis -vis broader North America. So what's going on with that now? Oh, what's going on with that now? Well, uh, Charles Taylor, uh, one half of the Bouchard-Taylor um, uh, Commission, commission uh, has now disavowed, in part, uh, the report that he had elucidated back in the day. Uh, I, my understanding on grounds that it was uh, misconstrued or misapplied by the government in its wake. Uh, the original recommendations, let, let's be very clear, it was a 300-page report. You know how reports are and what comes out is like maybe the you know, the, t the, the hot takes, right? It's like... Well, right, but there were also sort of concrete sort of action yes, pieces. Yes, and the concrete action piece, if I recall correctly, was that certain representatives of the government in decision-making positions, such as judges, uh, should not be wearing ostentatious religious symbols or religious symbols. I don't think ostentatious was then used in the report. And then the, the PQ government uh, morphed this into everyone from nurses and teachers and social workers, anyone that's essentially on public payroll now has in a very French sort of mentality, like from France, uh, cannot wear any symbols, any ostentatious religious symbols. There were exceptions for the odd exceptions for the, the crucifix that's in the National Assembly. And so it was sort of like acknowledging the historical traditions, the Christian heritage of Quebec, while uh, any other people that are not of that heritage have to just quiet down. And uh, so anyway, so I think it was definitely misapplied. And it was, it was a very embarrassing, very uh, tragic, uh, I'm, I'm not proud of that, that period in, in our recent Quebec history. And I was very, very heartened by the full-throated rejection of the PQ government with that. Uh, with that charter of secular values, I was very heartened by that. Doesn't mean it doesn't grow again, and it's not that, that the feelings that inform it are there. So I think Charles, uh, Charles Taylor's sort of renunciation and saying you know this was misconstrued and it became a bugaboo. Sure, he's I think he's right, and I'm glad that he's come out in the wake of this tragedy in Quebec City. Uh, I mean, I commend him. I, I understand the accusation might be like well. Um, maybe should have been clearer and more sort of militant of what you meant back back then. And apparently, there's the, the accusation that he did not articulate these points very clearly because he was trying to sort of throw a bone to uh, a rapacious mob in Quebec uh, who were more xenophobic, and so the, it was couched in a lot of different language, and it was not exactly clear this intention maybe that he's making clear now. Do I have that right, Joanna, or do you want to add something? Well, uh, and as I was saying to you earlier this morning, or just, just before, 
Um, this whole thing was really disheartening to me because when I was a political science undergraduate in Montreal and the Bouchard-Taylor Commission was underway, it was so exciting to me because I was studying Charles Taylor uh, as a philosopher in class and living in Quebec in the years following 9-11 um, in, in Canada, you know, a, a rich Im Im country of immigrants, um, a majority Francophone culture in a bilingual diverse city of Montreal. Um, and I was really excited and I thought it was a sort of a wise move on Chalet's part, both politically, um, but it seemed like it was something that was going to have legs. And it sort of crumbled very quickly into this ignominious bickering over identity politics. It's, it's also the case, you mentioned the crucifix in the National Assembly, um, but the very same day that the 300-page report was tabled in the National Assembly, um, Chalet brought a motion um, to clarify that the crucifix wasn't going to go anywhere. So, on the one hand, um, I, I think uh, I think Taylor's the thrust of what he's written um, this week in La Presse um, on this topic is that look, essentially, some of our comments about secularism and the need of the state to maintain a secular phase somehow just got dovetailed into existing animosities and hostilities towards. Um, towards religious minorities, particularly Muslims. Um, and so it's just, it, it doesn't bode well for the reasonable accommodation debate going forward. <laughs> uh, well, okay, I, I generally agree with how you put that. I, I just also, maybe this is some self-promotion, but uh, the whole, uh, the Multani decision, right, this is, the, this is the one with the Kirpan that you had described very well that um, was the provocative judgment that led to the, the, the Bouchard-Taylor Commission. Uh, there's actually, um, it was actually, there were actually three decisions in this whole reasonable accommodation debate. That there was the Multani decision, there was Anselm, Anselm, and not, uh, which was? Anselm, yeah. Anselm, sorry, I always, that's, I always, that's the Sukkot case, right? Yes, that's the Sukkot case, the Sukkot case of a gentleman, I mean, to be general about it, would want to have a sukkat. This is a religious practice among in, in Judaism, where essentially you sit in a booth for about a week and you eat your meals. And he wanted it in the lobby of his uh, his apartment building or condo building rather than on his balcony and the condo agreement. No, no, no. I think it's the other way around. He wanted it oh, on yes. his balcony, but they said you can have it in the lobby. That was their proposed reasonable accommodation because it was thought that it would be ugly. To have an outdoor You're absolutely right. I had it. I had it inversed. I had it inversed. Anyways, and so this uh, became a decision, and they had said that they the, the courts had granted him the right to have it on his balcony uh, because this was his sincere interpretation of the faith. And a, a third decision was actually something that my firm uh, was involved with. This was the Brooker Markovitz case, and this uh, was about a gentleman who refused to provide a religious divorce, the get as it's known. Uh, to his wife, uh, even though he had agreed to in a, in a sort of civil sense, and she was claiming damages. And all these three cases have in common, of course, is the intersection between um, religion and, and, and the civil courts, and to what extent we have to accommodate these alternative, uh, this alternative religious forum. Um, but Yes, I found that the commission uh, that Share had um, had started that that for the Bouchard uh, that Bouchard and Taylor were doing this roving commission all around the province. I mean, I found it frankly 
It's funny, could you say that you're very excited about it? I could see, look, it's exciting in an intellectual way, and maybe to, uh, not to be accusatory, maybe in a dilettante fashion. I, didn't, I frankly found it an aggravating force. I found it rather unnecessary and political, and I think it was really just scratching a wound. And I think that's what the, then we get this charter of secular values. I, I, found, I actually I attended uh, one of the, um, the, the Montreal Commission. I was there for, uh, for an evening. And I remember seeing Charles Taylor's face with these people, and this is Montreal, right? So it's not exactly like we're in the more the outskirts where it's more homogenous and some of the attitudes that were reported in, in the papers were a bit more jaw-dropping. And these are, you know, more metropolitan ties. But some of the things that were being said were so painful to listen to and so disturbing. Meaning racist? Well, it, in, in different, from different sides, there were those, I mean, racist, always it was a racial element to all of it. This is what we were discussing. It was either religious or racial or uh, others, right? That's what it was all discussing, whether you had a man who was Muslim, who was talking about feeling a grievance that in his workplace, Christian holidays are observed. And if he wants to observe his um, the Muslim holiday or take a day off, it's not exactly that there's a, an equitable um, recognition. Uh, and I think that's, that's a very fair argument that, you, that we have to deal with. And, or whether there were some you know, Native Americans who were there and they're like, by the way, <laughs> you know, I thought you need to go further. Um, and I found it, and then you had some women, very interesting, it really compelled me at the time, and it's something that I've thought about a lot since, but there was a, this university student in full burqa was very intelligent and articulate and made this sort of feminist argument about, she might be familiar with it, um, that uh, this is about covering your body and you know male gaze and I chose this this has nothing to do with religious coercion and people should the government should accommodate my feminist decision well that, that, that's really interesting and uh, as you know I've been listening to Sam Harris's podcast a lot recently and his response to that is absolutely you're free to wear a niqab or a hijab you're free to choose to cover yourself but you should also know that the overwhelming majority of women the world over are wearing it under explicit threats of coercion, under the threat of being labeled a whore and excommunicated by, from their from their families and communities. Um, and I totally agree with that observation. I totally agree with it. Yes, <laughs> it's it, yes. Simultaneously, I, I like the, the the woman who spoke did not mention that. I don't want. I look. I presume that people are informed and aware. Right, and mutually exclusive to say you know this is this is a sort of you know self-authored dignified choice but I also recognize that it's a practice that's connected to um, to practices of oppression well yeah and and again I'm a bit of um, I am a libertarian of sorts I mean look I I think tattoos sorry to say I think tattoos are a little silly that's just my personal taste I, I don't you know people are free to do what they want and you know, I can. Yeah, nobody. There, there isn't a substantial chunk of people getting uh, killed or being called whores or excommunicated because they have or don't have tattoos. No doubt, and I did not mean in my example to belittle the the seriousness of um, of being violent coercion, leading women across the Middle East to uh, stay veiled. Uh, but I'm just pointing out that, you know, if you want to wear whatever you want to wear, it's really none of my business. Um, but uh, anyway, so just to, to guess, wind down on uh, my reactions to that, the, the commission were a little different from yours. I just found it kind of an unnecessary aggravation. I think, uh, you know, there's always that weird thing in life where the difference between 
catharsis and resentment? Like, you know, are you sort of reliving something? Are you just aggravating like an old pain or are you getting some sort of catharsis? It's always, it's a balance in life, you know? And I didn't really see catharsis there. Yeah, I mean, although I guess it, it was hard to judge until maybe, you know, Charles Taylor seems to have come to his decision sort of 16 years after the fact, 16 years after setting out on his commission. So sometimes only the sands of time can tell. Yeah, but I, as we say in my tribe, I have Rahmunis on the fellow. I have maybe some uh, sympathy, some empathy, some uh, because he, he, he's a philosopher, Joanna. He's not a politician, and he can't really control the way that a report is then, uh, you know, goes through the the sausage grinder. But I'm happy that he wrote this thing, and I think there is a sense of uh, I'm actually rather heartened again by this reaction, the general reaction that I've seen, and I know I don't see all the reactions to this this tragedy in Quebec City. Well, right, there, there has been a tremendous outpouring of sympathy and solidarity with the Muslim community. Um, and there is something uh, offensive about the bickering that resumed the National Assembly the day after about you know the rights of religious minorities and how much we should restrict them. In particular, um, the CAQ, um, along with the NDP, I believe, accusing the Liberals of not going far enough in restricting the, the rights of religious minorities to wear religious objects. Um, right now, <clears throat> the law they're proposing, Law 62, um, forbids public employees from covering their face, but otherwise would permit uh, religious ornaments. Yeah, I did see it get politicized very quickly, um, and I, found, I find that uh, um, I find that there's, uh, look, there's still some hope. I think it might be going in the right direction. One thing that I, I look, I, I don't, I'm extremely suspicious of fellows like Jean-François Jean Lisée, who I think is a, um, this is the, the head of the, he's running for the nomination of the PQ, I'm not, yeah. yeah. And, uh, right, who had made some comments in the last election that were, uh, inflammatory suggesting that we have to get rid of the burqa because uh, women might be hiding AK-47s underneath it and he you know and this has come up again Cuillard uh, our premier had called him out on this type of language recently in the wake of this being this is the type of language we don't want to see or something to that effect we had thrown a, a stare had suggested as such and Lise has at least um, apologized more publicly for the comment I Still generally suspicious of him. I find him a snaky fellow. Um, but, um, uh, and they're still negotiating this bill. I mean, like you mentioned, the CAQ, Coalition Avenir Quebec. And uh, maybe what will come out of this back and forth might be what the Bouchard Taylor Commission uh, report originally wanted, which is just, just judges and maybe police officers, people with a real sense of. Authority over over newcomers and, and anybody any citizen and, and at the end of the day you know I have to say also all of this is sort of like a solution to a problem that doesn't exist I have to say all this stuff all this identity politics stuff and like as if you know like I've been a litigator okay I've never seen a judge now granted maybe and I've been to Saint Hyacinthe I've been to different districts okay I mentioned Saint Hyacinthe because they do have a full crucifix. In, um, in the dispatch room where they dispatch files, uh, where we're all robed, and it was very uh, shocking to me to see that. Uh, I mean, full crucifix, Jesus Christ on the cross, above the judge who's dispatching 
uh, is dispatching files. Maybe it's just that I'm a bit blind to these things. I, I do practice mostly in Montreal where I just don't see these things. Um, but anyways, it's all very symbolic. I don't like identity politics on right or left. I find them all dead ends and given to political opportunism. Thank you, Joanna. Okay, so hello, Daniel. Thank you for chatting again. And we thought in light of the relevance of what has happened over the last week with Andrew Potter, the now former director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada, uh, both to some of the general themes we talked about last time, as well as the specific um, details of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada's conference on Canadian exceptionalism that we went to that we would we would talk again about this recent uh, Potter affair. So just to briefly recapitulate, Andrew Potter um, is an author, a journalist. He has a PhD in philosophy. He's a sort of public intellectual who is known for his trenchant social criticism wrote a piece last week, an 800-word op-ed in Maclean's called How a Snowstorm Exposed Quebec's Real Problem Social Malaise, um, which uh, connected a sort of horrifying thing that happened during a snowstorm recently in Montreal. Apparently hundreds of motorists were stranded on the road overnight, um, and he connected it to general societal deterioration in Quebec, citing some quite legitimate statistics from Stats Canada, reporting things like um, the national volunteer rate in Canada is 44%, while in Quebec it's 32%. 36% of Quebecers agree that people can generally be trusted compared with 54% of Canadians. Um, some legitimate statistics like that, but also some dubious anecdotes, including um, the anecdote that in some restaurants in Montreal, there's two bills, one if you pay with a trackable mechanism and one if you pay with cash. Um, and a friend of mine who I was speaking to about this said he, he's 40 years old, he's lived in Quebec his whole life, and he's never heard of such a practice, nor of any of his friends. So there was widespread uh, denouncement of this piece. Um, McGill immediately tweeted that they they uh, they that the views expressed in it didn't represent McGill University. Politicians jumped into the fray, including the premier of Quebec, Philippe Couliard. Um, and a few days afterwards, uh, McGill accepted Andrew Potter's resignation. Um, So first question for you, Um, many people publicly have drawn comparisons to this incident to something that you mentioned right as we were leaving our our previous recording, um, which is the controversy surrounding Jan Wong's uh, column in 2006, uh, where she suggested that several Quebec school shootings, um, they called Polytechnique, Concordia, and Dawson, uh, could be connected to Quebec's so-called politics of exclusion, um, and there was also sort of disproportionate historic hysteria over that. Um, but so, so what do you what do you think of what's happened with Andrew Potter? Well, well, just to speak to the Jan Wong parallel that you just drew out there, Jan Wong in the past when she had made these comments that maybe there's more. Uh, social anomie in Quebec, which explains why we had the École Polytechnique massacre and the Concordia Valerie Fabricant shooting and the Kim Virgil, I believe was his name, the shooter at Dawson. Just to draw a distinction here, because it actually helps, I think, draw out my opinion on the Potter affair. Um, Jan Wong, when she had made those comments, I did find them flimsy. When you talk about 
shootings. I mean, these are aberrations. It's not as if this is a regular occurrence in Quebec or really, um, or, or really anywhere. I mean, as you know, in the States where this happens more often, maybe due to access to firearms, I still always find it ridiculous when people try to point to some sort of smoking gun and this has, well, not to, not to use a, uh, a metaphor that's, uh, Unkind in these situations, but when they when they point to that, this has to do with video game violence. This has to do with um, I don't know uh, social media or uh, racism or something silly. I mean, these are aberrations. The whole point of these shootings is that there's they're uncontrollable and unpredictable. But I mean, to get to the point of Andrew Potter, because I think the distinction here is that he actually provided some data <laughs> in his piece. I mean, you went through it very um, succinctly in your introduction. There, he had cited some research that speaks to lack of social trust here in Quebec. Now, I have not taken the time to scrutinize his sources, but no one, well, no one has made any... Canada, nobody, nobody's disputed that. Well, and that's what I find is curious about this. So everyone, what I heard from Philip Couillard, our, prime, uh, our premier, is, I mean, the example he gave was, well, you know, uh, the Quebec mosque shooting, there was such solidarity and outpouring of support, so therefore... You know, as if that example, which, and he's right, I don't want to diminish the kind observation he made about Quebec, which is that there was an outpouring of solidarity. Bit following. of a double-edged sword, though, right? <laughs> well, yeah, considering that it happened in the first place is mm. upsetting and maybe speaks to the opposite point he's trying to make. Or maybe it doesn't, but the point is that it's not data-driven. Like, neither here nor there, the Quebec, the Quebec mosque shooting, the fact that this troubled man had shot a bunch of people in a mosque doesn't prove that Quebec has some sort of profound pathology and the, the, the coming together in its wake doesn't prove that Quebec is a particularly communitarian place either. It's like an aberrant happening. Um, whereas Potter went to the sources and went to data. He went to stats can, like, like you just said, no one took issue with that. It's our most reputable uh, statistical research Institute in Canada and that, to me, was the meat of the piece. Mind you, you also pointed out, and I did have the same reaction, when he went on with these examples. Well, there are two examples. One about that you went on about the two bills at a restaurant. I've lived here my whole life. And, in fact, I make a habit of going to new restaurants every time I eat. So I've really seen many restaurants in this city, and it's known for its restaurants. I don't know what he's talking about. I've never seen that in my life. No, but it does Mind occur to me that the, even though the substance of that anecdote might not be true, those types of anecdotes are, let's be honest, kind of dime a dozen in Montreal. Like, for example, when I was in law school, there was a woman who was sitting eating sushi at one of my favorite restaurants at the time, Mikasa on Peel Street. Slab of concrete fell down and smashed her skull in. And when there was the subsequent, which is horrifying, of course, and the subsequent investigation suggested that basically corrupt practices amongst building inspectors, um, it could be traced back to that in some way. So let's be honest, there are stories about things operating not entirely above ground in Montreal. Well, okay, but you have Joanna, Joanna, Joanna. You're talking about something that's not related to the initial point, initial point that I made. If you want to talk about corruption in the construction industry in Montreal, I can have a very long conversation where mostly, mostly I will be agreeing with the essence of the point you just made. But he was not talking about that. He talked about something specific. He just talked about something more banal than someone getting their poor face no, he's talking about civil, civil society deterioration and a general 
lack of trust and cynicism and public cynicism. So I, I disagree that it's totally separate. No, it's on, look, it's on the same, under the same rubric, Joanna, if you're talking about uh, social disharmony or poor administration, the, sure, but I'm just, he gave certain examples, like, the, you know, the words speak for themselves, okay, he did not talk okay, about Okay, yes, I, I grant that, but my general point was, yes, this, that anecdote might not have been true, but he could have found one that would have been just as fitting and, and ha- might have been did. true. So he left, but he right. didn't, so he left himself open, you know, everything after buts, right? He chose that example, it was a curious example. Mind you, I also found it kind of, Another reason why it was a poor example is that, in fact, it is true that tax evasion in the restaurant industry in Montreal is a huge problem. And this is well known and well documented. Sorry, that fact, what's, a, what's a huge problem? Tax evasion. Tax by evasion. The ah. Yes, by the restaurant industry in Montreal is a huge social problem that's been very well documented to the extent that Revenue Quebec has had a huge initiative to try to collect, I think, $4 billion in, in untapped revenues because of taking cash and, um, and I think also um, manipulating receipts on their cash registers. It's a, it's a huge thing. I mean, anyone can Google this. It's a well-known thing. But he didn't mention that. He just mentioned this weird parallel bill issue. But anyways, let's move on, though. The other point that he mentioned was that what fifty dollar bills being dispensed at ATMs um, by error. I'd never heard of that, and I'd even tried googling it after. I couldn't find any source. They were just they were just odd examples, and like you made the point, Joanna, there are plenty of examples of corruption or or poor management that he could have chosen, but he happened to choose these odd examples, which just left him open to these attacks. And that's what I found kind of upsetting because the real meat, like I said earlier, was the stats, the stats can data that he presented. That is, okay, now you're being academic. Now there's some serious sources and we should take you more seriously. But he just didn't balance that seriousness with those with more with serious examples. Okay, so then let's, uh, turn, let's turn to the nub of this. Should he have been effectively pressured to resign from his job? Or was it a violation of academic freedom? Or a sign that Quebec is an illiberal society whoa, that, that whoa. can't that can't that can't take co- constructive criticism of itself. You're such a provocateur. Donna. Well, no, I mean, if somebody wrote a piece about Toronto like this, everybody everybody would be nodding their heads. I mean, Toronto. I think one of one of uh, Potter's colleagues wrote this that I, I hate Toronto, and if I wrote a piece saying ten things that make Toronto terrible, uh, people you know people would listen carefully for all of its downsides. Inability to take take criticism is not one of Toronto's flaws. But but let's let's get to the question about McGill's response um, and what you think of it. Well, look, uh, even though I just called you a provocateur, um, I genuinely agree uh, with the fact that this was or what you're asserting, which is that this this is problematic. I do think it's an assault on intellectual academic freedom. I think what he wrote was. Again, I, I saw the seriousness of what he was writing. I thought it was actually a courageous article. And I, I found it upset, ridiculous that our premier is, is weighing in on it and making public comments. And that that's obviously, I mean, even though she's denied it, this um, was it Suzanne Fortier, I believe is her name, yes. who, is the, who is the principal at McGill and who has been very 
dodgy, I feel, <laughs> about her responsibility in this. Apparently, I think she had said that she had spoken to the board of trustees, and I think she said all I had said was that, you know, it is unusual that politicians are weighing in on this, um, but apparently she didn't receive any calls from politicians. It just sounds like she's, I said you pettinage, come on. Yeah, you know, she's, I, I, she's, I think... Yeah, she's she's skating around and whether or not she had any direct conversations with politicians, it's clear that there was implicit public pressure from the Quebec political elite, um, which, of course, is tied up with McGill's governance and livelihood. So I, I think it, it's clear on its face that she capitulated or McGill capitulated to po- political pr- pressure. I don't think we need to, quote unquote, get the transcripts to come to that conclusion. Right. I, I agree with that. You know, and I was trying to play this parallel situation in my mind. It's like, imagine if you had, I don't know, a well-respected journalist and academic in the United States writing for a well-respected national newspaper, say, the New York Times, maybe through the Wall Street Journal, let's try something a bit more right of center, and said something critical of the Trump administration, and then Trump weighs Twitter, you know, Twitter hates the dude. And then all of a sudden this well-respected institution kicks them out or that would be the McLean's kick. And that would be say the university that the person was employed with gets kicked out. I mean, that would be a real national scandal. I would feel even in this, in this zeitgeist that we're in where, um, journalists feel, um, in some sort of topsy-turvy world. I, I, I don't know if the analogy works, and I think that's exactly the point of why this is interesting. It's so Quebec-specific. Even the discussion about academic freedom and free speech, it's so Quebec-specific. The reaction, um, right before this call, I texted you um, a letter to Le Devoir from a retired judge, a fellow named <clears throat> André Denis, where he connects um, the the underlying systemic perception of of the of the Tutsis as an inferior race to Andrew Potter's uh, comments about Quebecois as a quote unquote almost pathologically alienated and low trust society, and suggesting that Andrew Potter was laying the groundwork for a future genocide in Canada. Ben la. <laughs> Oh, no, I found that outrageous. There's a face bomb and really upsetting that he's actually a former judge that was weighing in on war crimes in Rwanda. I mean, it's, it's too upsetting to even think about. So, like, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. I'm trying to find a way to defend my belle province in this, in this pie-in-the-face type of scandal. Well, look, I, right. but I, I will say that this is an issue where very smart friends of mine disagree, and I have noticed disproportionately not all of my uh, Québécois de Souche or Franco-Québec friends um, support McGill's decision, but only my Québec de Souche friends. Well, they're, they're focusing, again, on the, the, the weak part of the piece, which is a weak part of the piece. You know, it's an open place to attack if you want to attack it, but they're all avoiding the stronger part. Again, that's can research. And when you draw this out and you're saying it's the Dessouche friends and contacts who have issue with it, I can't really comment on that. I can't really, you know, it's not as if I've asked everyone I know, and even that would be anecdotal, but I, it's, it is kind of evident. The man is named Andrew Potter, and he is representing McGill University which is maybe perceived by a certain cohort of French-speaking Quebecers as a bastion of Anglo dominance, or there's a classist element. 
I wonder if the man were, I don't know, Jean-Guy Trottier or something, had a, had a French name, <laughs> even if he were in the same position, if it would be received oh, the same oh, way. Oh, it's been noted that a journalist, and I, I don't have the link right now, but I'll link to it in the show notes, a journalist in La Presse uh, last week wrote a substantially similar piece, and there was no reaction whatsoever, uh, also decrying the, the police in pink uniforms um, and the highway disaster and, and the general uh, social alienation in Quebec. So I, I think, I think that's, that's clear as well. So it does lead to, I guess, to, to, you know, to conclude, it's ad hominem. The man happens to be uh, painfully Anglo-looking and has a painfully Anglo name at a Anglo institution. And so therefore, we're attacking the man and, and the author, not really the arguments put forward. And that it is, I have to say, a there's something reactionary. There's a bit of a, you know, it's like a small man complex, right? It's like, oh, the the... You know, the Anglo is going to come and tell us that we suck. Screw that guy. It's really that simple. Well, yeah, by the way, yes. But from the institutional perspective, I also think, given that Potter, uh, you know, retracted the parts that were inaccurate, apologized, professed that he would try and do better, I think that's, that's how academic intellectual discourse is supposed to work. You know, you you... The, the intellectual community corrects your shortfallings and, and everybody learns that way. You don't get, you know, you don't get the boot out the door on the first, on the first infraction. Yeah, well, of course, and it leads to this chilling effect. I mean, I thought the whole point of the, the Institute is to have open dialogue and, and chart a brave discourse on topics of who we are as a people. And so, you know, you better believe whoever replaces him and whoever's involved with the institution, other big minds who we look to to guide us in our journey, will feel more fearful in terms of what they put forward. And that's not that is all for today. Thank you so much for tuning in to Running Mead Radio. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please consider subscribing and or leaving a review on iTunes. It helps. You can also visit our website at runnymeadsociety.ca to follow our goings-on, subscribe to our newsletter, and donate if you'd like to support us. Thanks so much again, and see you next time.